Hi, this is Danielle Cursa from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 184 of Art for Your Ear. Okay, so here's a little behind the scenes for you. I always record the intro and outro for the podcast after I've had the conversation with my guest. Usually I do this in a pretty timely fashion, but this week I have left the intro until the last possible second. (laughs) I interviewed Diana Weimar, an American artist who's based in Canada, about her ongoing politics meets art embroidery series, The Tiny Pricks Project, um, in early October. Well, here we are on Friday, November 6th, and I thought that I would have something to say about who is or isn't the 46th president of the United States. (laughs) Okay, hang on, I'm going to hit refresh again. Nope. No, still no final results. Okay, don't get me wrong. I will wait because I want every single one of those those votes counted. But at the same time, well, you get it. I'm not even American and I have bitten all of my fingernails off over the past three days. Anyway, all of this to say, this episode is going to be political because that's the entire point of the Tiny Pricks Project. If you're not familiar with this public protest art project, let me share Diana's statement because she, of course, explains it beautifully. Desperate times, creative measures. Like so many others, I am trying to process this presidency in a way that doesn't involve withdrawing from following politics. This project is about witnessing, recording, taking notes in thread, and paying attention. Paying attention to his words. This series holds a creative space in a tumultuous political climate. Tiny Prick's project counterbalances the impermanence of Twitter and other social media and Trump's statements by using textiles that embody warmth, craft, permanence, civility, and a shared history. The daintiness and strength of each piece stands in stark contrast to his presidency. And you can make a Tiny Prick too. Yep, you can. (laughs) And right after this episode, I made a piece that I've contributed to the project. Anyway, we will get to all of that during the episode. And of course, I've included links and images from the project in a great big post over on my site, thejealouscurator.com. If you want to follow Diana right this very second, just go to at tinypricksproject, all one word, on Instagram. All right, let's find out how this American ended up living in Canada and how she turned her political outrage into a massive public art project. Calling Diana in Victoria, British Columbia. Hi, Diana. Welcome to Art for Your Ear. Thank you. I kind of can't believe that we are actually hearing each other's voices after all of our many, many... uh, Instagram DMs and comments and everything we're actually like can hear each other now well it's kind of amazing for me because I started to follow your work um, when I started to do this work so um, talking to you someone whose work I've admired for so long and who also speaks with a Canadian accent is kind of (laughs) a special experience for me I know (laughs) two Canadian girls and not only just Canadian but also British Columbia that's true. And I, I don't want to, um, uh, you know, s- spread any fake news about myself <laughs> so early into the podcast, but I'm American actually, and a Canadian permanent resident. So I've okay. I have my questions. life on 
both sides of the border. Okay, I have questions about that. About uh, <laughs> yes, I, I because of where you grew up, but then where you went to university. I was like, wait a minute, is she American Canadian? What's going on here? So okay, well let's just jump right into that then. So I know you grew up in northern BC, though, right? I did. I was born in Vermont. Okay, um, and I moved when I was a year old to. Telegraph Creek, which um, even by our collective standards is pretty far north and pretty pretty remote. Yeah, why? <laughs> why <did you laughs> well, I didn't. Remote? I didn't have a choice. As a year old, well, the why is such a, a big question, and it certainly circles back to the work that I'm doing now at 51, 50 years later, because my parents are both, were both American. Now, the rest of my family of origin is dual, but my parents at the time were American. My father grew up outside Detroit and my mother grew up in Connecticut. And they decided to leave the States in 1970 for what I would say are political and personal reasons. Um, As we all know, telling stories, it's never clear which story is the story, but um, they left in 1970. Uh, My father did not want to fight in the war in Vietnam and they drove as far north and west as they could go and they ended up in Telegraph Creek, British Columbia, which is pretty close to Wrangell, Alaska actually. Um, And that and then and then the why comes, you know, the why is a is a big question. Um, But they were in their early 20s and I remain sort of incredibly impressed and amazed that they lived in the wilderness for seven years um, without a lot of wilderness experience in their backgrounds. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. And so were you, did you have older brothers and sisters at the time or were you the only kid? I was the only one. My brother um, was born obviously at home. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So there weren't a lot of other children. And I've been thinking about that a lot recently as, as we all have my nephews visiting the us from Los Angeles and he's five and every morning he does half an hour of online schooling. And I think about being homeschooled and the difference for me was I didn't know I was growing up in isolation. I didn't really know that there were a lot of other children out there, much less a school or much less a classroom and playgrounds and recess. So, you know, it's a pretty different experience. Um, But a lot of these things are coming, you know, coming back now for me. Yeah, the current political situation, and not not just the pandemic, but also the political situation we're in. Yeah. Oh God. Well, this is what our whole conversation is going to be about, <laughs> given your project. Um, and yeah. so, so you were there till you were what seven or eight? Exactly. When I was eight, we moved to Vancouver, and my oh. father went to law school, and then we moved back to Smithers, which is you know sort of between Vancouver and Telegraph Creek, and that's right. where I stayed through uh, high school. Wow. Okay. And then, okay. So during this time, were you, what kind of, were you a creative kid? Were you um, embroidering back then? Um, I know you ended up going to school for creative writing. So were you like writing poems and plays or what were you, what were you doing as a kid and teenager? Well, it's, uh, whether, yeah, and those are very different (laughs) eras for me. Um, For my childhood, I, I don't think I would have said that I was a creative kid yet obviously everything I did was infused with imagination because we didn't have electricity. We didn't have indoor plumbing, you know, there, and I can list all the things we didn't have, but on the other hand, when you don't know, you don't have them again, you don't 
know you're missing anything. And so I thought that imaginative play was what everyone did. And I had imaginary friends and um, some of my best friends <laughs> were imaginary. Um, and so I think it was a very, what was so creative about that period of time is that it didn't have, I didn't have a sense of loss. And I don't know if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. But there wasn't anything to lose. And so, in fact, there was everything. I had everything I needed. I had a whole world. And um, I think that that must have been an ongoing creative, ex everything must have been a creative experience. But I will also say that there was a lot of hard work involved. And I think that connects back to, to a practice, an artistic practice. There was a lot of practical living that we had to do. You had to hunt, you had to fish, you had to grow garden, you had to, you know, do these different things in order to survive. So I don't know if that's creative exactly, but I think that it involves um, a real drive to find solutions to mm -hmm. everyday problems that you're having when something breaks and you can't call anyone. There's, <laughs> yeah. no, call. There's no phone. Wow, um, I can't believe your parents did that. Like, I mean, I it's so it cool. Either. What's that? I can't believe it either. I couldn't believe it when I started to have children myself. First of all, I had all my children in the hospital. So that was you know, yeah. right off the bat, I went in a different direction. But I also can't really believe it now when I think about how isolated they were as a couple and then how resourceful they were. And then the fact that nothing had really prepared them for that. Well, Their that's what I was going to say. Them. Yeah. Um, so we think all the time of parents as pre preparing our children for things. Um, and now I think we wonder how much we've prepared our children for the pandemic and, and if, what this pandemic will mean. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that I don't, I can't think of very much of my mother's growing up in Darien, Connecticut that would have prepared her for living in the wilderness. Um, you know, she, she went from poodles to sled dogs. I don't think, I think that we can prepare ourselves in the moment. And that's a lot of what Tiny Perks Project is about. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, okay, well, so this is this was one of my questions for you because I knew that you grew up in Northern BC and then I, I, your resume says um, that you went to Princeton. Yes. And I was like, how do you go from being a kid in remote Northern British Columbia to Princeton? I didn't even know Princeton existed. You know, my guidance counselor certainly didn't tell me about it. So um, yeah, how did that happen? I guess that's where your family roots were. Yeah, that's a really, yes, that's exactly it. And that goes back to, you know, my father went to Dartmouth. My mother's um, had family members who'd been at Princeton. Um, it's not a mystery when you connect the fact that I grew up in BC as an American, as right. an East Coast American whose parents had a specific background. So it's it's not a surprise un under those circumstances. And, right. you know, I, I want to be clear that I had that opportunity because I grew up where I grew up, right? So the two are, are deeply connected. It's not you grew up in Northern BC and how did you go to Princeton? It's more, I went to Princeton because I grew up in Northern BC. Um, and I think that those two worlds are more connected than one would think um, because there's something very unique and special about the upbringings that you and I had. And many of my peers had that 
makes you think uh, in a different way. Hmm. That's, that's lovely. I, I really like that. Um, so you went for creative writing. I did. Was your plan journalism? What were you at that stage in your life? What were you thinking? I was trying to survive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty hard. Um, I was thinking that I wanted to write and I had been writing a lot and I had um, was always surrounded by books and uh, my father in particular had done some writing and a lot of storytelling. So I think that I was, you know, I was trying to survive mostly. I had four jobs and scholarship, <laughs> financial aid. So I worked a lot, but um, most of all, I think I was trying to go for a certain, I was trying to see how far I could go out into the world. I had this idea um, of wanting to do something, which I guess we just call ambition. So um, I was pretty ambitious in terms of moving myself forward and having new experiences, whether I was a writer or, or I didn't even know what other options there were necessarily um, because that was what I did. Mm -hmm. It was, was almost I like a job in college. Right. Did it feel eye-opening when you got to, well, because you'd been in Vancouver, but when you got to Princeton and you're in creative writing, did you, were there other things that you were starting to be like, oh, I could, I wonder about that, or I wonder about that? Uh, there was so much, because yeah. you remember, I mean, when I grew up, it, when you lived in Smithers, um, you didn't have the internet. <laughs> so, yes. So it was such a, a different world. Um, you know, I remember listening to music on the radio, and then we would send a, a, mail, a check to the record company <laughs> and then three months later the record would come and you'd listen to it again <laughs> over and over again so there was a lot that was eye-opening everything was eye-opening yeah um not that was just, like leaving Summerland too you know like yes we were so now with the internet and everything you're exposed to so much more and I've moved back here now and seeing my 14 year old son the things he's exposed to at 14 in Summerland compared to what I was exposed to at 14 in Summerland are truly a world apart. Yes. You know, so getting to university and I just went to UVic, but getting there, I was just like terrified and excited. And it was just like, what is it? You know, it was just so different than anything I'd known. And yeah, Smithers to Princeton, going to Princeton is quite different. Um, and so, you know, we're going to talk mainly today about um, your project, Tiny Pricks Project, but were you sort of get, given your parents' background with, you know, not wanting to go to war and whatnot, were you political when you were at Princeton? I was, um, and that was when we had Take Back the Night marches. We also mm -hmm. had two all-male eating clubs um, just off campus at that time. Um, so I was political. And I think I sought out people who were political. I wouldn't say that I was incredibly, um, I wasn't quite as brave as this, as this project is. Um, I think I was still figuring out how things worked and I was very much working within the system. There were people, friends I had who were staging sit-ins and, you know, were really uh, fearless. And I don't, I was not fearless. I, I was part of the crowd in terms of my political activism. But I did have, and I have always had a sense that being political and being patriotic can come in many different forms. And 
that you can leave a country because you're patriotic, because you believe so strongly in a certain version of that country and when it's not, you know, it doesn't feel that way when you're being asked to go fight a war you don't believe in. Mm-hmm. It's not because you don't believe in your country, you don't believe in that leadership. So I think I was able, you know, I, I understood that there was there were many different ways that you could be politically active. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you're certainly being politically active now. And um, I'm going to just kind of, well, I, I kind of need to know, though, first, before I jump to that, how did you end up coming back to Canada? <laughs> I came back to Canada in, I moved back uh, in 2007 with um, my husband and four children. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And um, we had bought, we wanted to live in British Columbia for a while, like you. And I've heard your story about being in Toronto and then moving back. We, we were, for ourselves and for our family, wanting to have some of the experience of what I had. Now, as you and I both know, you can't, you don't go back. One does not go back. Right. Really, you go back to a very different experience. Um, and my husband at the time was um, interested in law, going to law school at the University of, at UVic. So um, um, there were a lot of different things that were happening in our personal lives. But it was also in terms of politics, that was W. So Bush, I mean, that was not, it certainly wasn't like my parents' situation. But um, we were mindful that we were looking um, and had available to us uh, another country to to live in and I think that's um a real privilege to have access to mm-hmm. both countries yeah it really is it really yeah. is how old were your kids at the time um they were um let's see grade nine and then um seven five and three wow yeah so they and what were, did they think um the youngest, so the youngest is is to some degree the most. I wouldn't say Canadian because they're all permanent residents, but is the most Canadian. And um, I think they, the younger three, really enjoyed it. My oldest was already quite attached to New Jersey and living in the states, and he ended up going back for boarding school. Um, you know, he'd grown up with the history of the revolution, not the loyalists, so right. it's a pretty different experience for him. Um, so. Uh, what do they think? I, you know, they're very open kids. I think are pretty open to experiences now. And yeah. so uh, like me, they are now experiencing childhood in one country, but also an adulthood in, in the other country, two of my kids are in the States right now and two are here. So okay. um, there's a fluidity for them of going back and forth and comparing, especially right now and contrasting the two countries. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, that is a that is a big contrast. I have a few friends right now who are um, legitimately um, looking into coming. Like a, a friend of mine has dual citizenship, um, but his husband doesn't. But um, he's been applying for everything because with their, you know, you know, marriage equality being reversed, like mm-hmm. all this crazy stuff. He's yes. just like, okay, I'm out. Like, and you know, he again has the benefit of having that dual citizenship. Um, and so he's just trying to figure it all out right now. And it's just so much, but if you can, you know, if you do have that flexibility, like, God, why not use it? 
Yes, and and what sort of qualifies as as an existential threat, and what might actually become a real threat? Um, I don't know if you you probably watched The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, and yes, the, I think we're all watching it right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're all watching, and you know it's a little surreal in the final. Not spoiler alert, but when they you know they, when they come to camp, when people come, yeah. whenever they come to Canada, <laughs> you see the flags and the and the blankets, and the, and they get a. Rogers SIM card. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, that that it's always um, interesting. But I I will be very clear that I could stay in BC all the time, and yet I spend a lot of time in the states and working on this project in in the virtual way. I I live very much um, yes with what's happening in the states. I don't think that Canadians uh, feel indifferent. Um, I think they feel a lot of compassion toward what's happening in the States. And I, I say that because there are a lot of participants in this project who are Canadian who have supported it from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, Me included. Not, exactly. Well, you know, I think, um, see, until we had this conversation, I thought you were Canadian. And I was like, <laughs> I wonder why she's so engaged in American <laughs> politics. Now I know. Um, but um, I, I think what it is for me um, is not only compassion, but also insane frustration mm -hmm. <laughs> because all we can do is watch. We have no power to vote. You know, there's all this stuff now, vote, vote, vote. And it's like, I, dude, if I, if I could, I would, you know, or here, you know, here's all the senators you can call. And it's like, I can't call them or fill out this, you know, fill out this, um, form and and protest this way and it's like it asks for your zip code i'm always tempted just to put 90210 because that's the only american zip code <laughs> i know <laughs> you know i've never thought of that that as as sort of a you're experiencing a, a sort of phantom um election just the way we in victoria have this strange relationship to the pandemic because there's very little covid here right and yet we go through all the precautions as we should but there's not, we, we can't, you know, actively do things that other people are doing other places they need to do to save themselves and protect their community. Yeah, that's the same here. You know, it's such a small town. Everything's pretty much fine. But we, you know, the kids are wearing masks to school and like they're doing all of the things, but there's just, there's no cases here. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm proud of us for still, you know, I'm proud of British Columbia for still doing all yes. the things that they need to do and everything. But yeah, it's a very, um, as far as like watching American politics, um, the only way I get my news is through Seth Meyers, late night with Seth Meyers. <laughs> I, I, if it is not coded in comedy, I, there's not enough anxiety meds in the world for me to actually take in real news. Like I, I just can't handle it. Um, and that's actually a good segue into your project because I get a lot of my headlines from you <laughs> and all of your contributors to this project. So can you tell me how did this start? When did this start? The how, what, why, when, all of it? Yeah. So it's, so it, it obviously didn't start the way it is now. Um, I have done projects where I've set out with an intention and it's been pretty clearly outlined and I've tried to execute it. Tiny Pricks project um, grew out of a practice that I was already developing and it was public uh, textile-based 
political projects. So I'd done a few projects um, with Build Peace, which is an international peace building organization in Cyprus and different countries. And I'd also done one with the Victoria Writers Festival that was a public project. And I developed this project, Interwoven Stories, which at the time seemed quite large, uh, was done with different groups across the country and with Build Peace. And it involved using what looked like a piece of three hold line paper that was actually fabric to stitch in a story, a, per, a piece of a personal narrative using mm -hmm. a UNESCO cultural mapping prompt. And so that project was done with the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, the island of Nantucket, uh, trans and gender diverse teens in Victoria, uh, different schools, the entire town of Princeton. Wow. So I was working what, what on that was, project. What was that one called? Interwoven Stories. And it's over 300 pages. And in fact, one of the chapters is a group of children in Damascus. I wasn't able to travel there, but a, an artist and activist there did the same project using the methodology. So that project was growing and I was having this experience of um, seeing how stitching and textile could be used in larger groups and as a community building exercise. Tiny Pricks, I, it took me two years to, I really made the first piece in, in 2018, and it took me a couple years to figure out how to engage with the language coming out of the Trump presidency. Because of most of what I do starts with language because of my creative writing, and then, I, then after college worked in film in New York for almost a decade. So I, I've always been interested in language and I find for me, it's the way in that feels the safest. So it's my Seth Meyers. So if I just look at the language, I can very quickly start to process and feel uh, and look for meaning and find meaning. And in this case, find protest. So I'm always looking at politics with a heavy filter. I think we all are. It's just where is our entry point where we feel safe? And mm -hmm. I, when Trump said, I'm a very stable genius, it may not have been the first time he said it, but the first time I heard it, that phrase to me was everything. And it was almost like a call. It was like, a, <laughs> like an arrow that hit me. It, it just, I think, begged to be stitched. And at the time I had some textiles that had been my grandmother's and my great grandmother's, I'm not sure it all sort of came to me. And it was not a textile I particularly liked, but for some reason, I think because someone had made this needlepoint cover for a large um, stool that I decided I would keep it. And I thought I'm gonna take these words I don't like, uh, this piece of textile I'm not particularly fond of, and I'm gonna put them together and I'm gonna stitch these words. And we had a 45 minute drive from Princeton into New York. Uh, my husband was driving and I sort of very quickly stitched, I'm a very stable genius and then took a photo and posted it to my 400 followers on Instagram. But I knew, I knew the feeling that I had making it, that it was something. And I thought I'm gonna do one a week and Trump will become more presidential as the presidency goes on, or he'll be removed from office, but there won't be a lot of material in the end, but there'll be enough that I can do one a week. No, no, it's true. It, it, it's true, I thought that. Um, and then I started, following him on Twitter, I actually started paying attention. And then, then it was sort of, well, I'll do a piece a day. And at the end of this, I'll have a quirky little show and people will be like, oh, this artist stitched one piece a day of things Trump said, ha ha ha. And I couldn't stop. 
and I still had this other project that was being exhibited and I was doing an artist in residency in San Francisco and I had other things going on. And to be honest with you, I was afraid to prioritize Tiny Pricks project because it felt like such a gamble to throw my, all my creative energy into Trump. It really mm. felt like that's not a good idea. Maybe that's not good for my mental health. It's not good for, it's not gonna result in anything really. Um, but the process of making the pieces and then the response that I started to get really gave me a lot of confidence. So in January, 2019, I just had a show in Princeton and I had to decide, am I gonna to continue to develop this show or am I gonna to turn to Tiny Pricks? I sat down with um, my husband and also with the photographer I'd done the project with in Princeton and they both said, just do Tiny Pricks, like do it now. This is a, this is a, this is a window of time. And I did throw myself into it and now I'm into it you know, 24 seven really. And, and there are a lot of, then along the way, a lot of people stepped in to help New York textile month galleries, people like you, people started to share it. Um, participants started to come forward. And that summer after I made the first 50 pieces, a group of friends said to me, can you do a workshop? Mm. And we got together and what I realized very quickly, and a lot of women were making pieces around the access Hollywood tape um, and the incredibly offensive things that Trump has said about women. But what I realized very quickly is that there was real value in getting together and talking about politics and learning about different people's experiences. Um, but you wouldn't normally stop someone on the street and say, so tell me about your experience of sexual assault or tell me about right. how you feel about, you know, she had blood coming out of wherever. You just wouldn't have those conversations. And yet when you're sitting around stitching, and making something and your hands are busy and maybe you have a glass of wine or maybe you, you know, you, you have an excuse to talk about your personal politics. Yeah. And that's really how and why Tiny Pricks grew. It's a combination of the help from the outside world. Um, and then the sort of inner desire that we have to communicate about what's most important to us right now. Mm-hmm. When I think right now, so much of it is um, you have this internal frustration, right? And it, it's so you, you trying to figure out how to let it out is really tricky right now. And um, I, I think that's so interesting that you say that about, you know, women sitting around and being able to talk about their experiences, because I think that's what was so upsetting is, you know, to hear the the in theory, the leader of the free world, say those things about women. If you have had, you know, a, a Me Too experience, which most of us have, it's so triggering. It's like, how can he, you know, it's, yeah. it just immediately takes you back to what your experience was. And it's um, awful. You know, it, it, you kind of relive the trauma again. And um, to hear, you know, this person who's supposed to be leading the world say it without apology is just sickening. And so being able to, yeah, almost have like a therapy session with other people who understand is amazing. And that tape came out before he was elected. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, that's part of, I mean, because of that tape, I think we have you know, the Me Too movement, the Women's March. I think there was so much that was yeah. said, but also because he was then, he was then elected. 
Um, yeah. And the rage part of it, and the, the upset part of it, has been interesting to track, even with these two years of intense work on the project. It doesn't stay the same. And when I began this project, there were, first of all, galleries and people I'd work with who wouldn't exhibit it because it was too political. And, you know, thankfully, there were brave people who stepped into the arena, not the least of which was Lingua Franca last summer. Well, not last summer, <laughs> summer 2019. Um, and they brought it to New York and they really brought it out um, in a really significant way. But, you know, keep in mind, there was a time when people were afraid of offending other people, even though we were being offended, we were afraid of being offensive. And so it was, it's been interesting. I think now the gloves have come off. I mean, now, and you'll see with tiny pricks, my tone generally has been pretty is to keep, I would say keep calm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Dr. Bonnie Henry's keep calm, keep safe. Yeah. You know, be safe, be kind. But I, I'm feeling less and less kind. And I have <laughs> I have not been feeling kind toward this administration for quite a while. But I do think there's a it's important for me not to expend too much energy being angry because it doesn't um it doesn't it's not sustainable. No, and it, all it does is injure you really. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so, uh, there's so many things to say. Um, what I, what I think is so amazing about it and, and like people who support him, they, they can't get mad at the project because all you're doing is quoting him. Yes. That you know what I mean? It. It's like, you're not saying, you're not saying stuff about him. It's just like, no, he said this. <laughs> yes, that is it. It turns out at first I thought, well, it's a convenient it's convenient that he said these things so that if I'm in a debate with a Trump supporter, I can say, but he said it. But it's really not about the fact that he said it. I'm not revealing anything new. Everyone knows, he tweets these things. Yeah, so, yeah. so the real question is, he said it, and then what makes that so political? And what is, what's new that you can bring to this current political discourse? And what Tiny Pricks brings that's new is, first of all, it is a material record during a time when we, when there is no record. Trump can say something and then say he didn't say it, even though we heard him say it. Yes. It's yeah. incredibly frustrating um, experience. So the words are out there. I'm not revealing new words. I think we all agree. Trump supporter, non-supporter, whatever. We, we know he's saying this. It's so public, but it also is so um, immaterial. It's so, it's just feels like it's all fluid salad and yeah, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter. This is a way of highlighting what he's saying and to say, he said this and I feel this way about it and I'm going to remember that he said it. Mm -hmm. And I think well, that's, that's why I'm so important. glad your, your husband and Galler said, just do this because it's a time capsule. It is a time capsule. It it's, is. You're capturing this I moment. Hope it's, I hope it's a, the time yeah. capsule is about to be sealed. <laughs> I know. I know. It's like, wait, how long is this time capsule going to go on? Let's put the lid on. Uh, but it is, a, that is a very powerful thing. I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot during the quarantine and stuff that, you know, we can look for silver linings and we can look for a way to turn really bad things into art you know it's it's the superpower of an artist to to take these things and go well, I'm going to turn this into art I'm going to make it an experience I'm going to you know 
bring some beauty or some levity or some community or all of the above to this thing that could otherwise on your own kind of bring you to your knees. Yeah. And I think that's what this is. You know, it's, um, it's so, uh, yeah, it really shows that you're not the only one that thinks this is crazy. <laughs> like when I see your stuff come up on my feet, I'm like, oh, thank God. Someone else thought that, that statement was nuts. And I love that it's all stitched, like that you're not just retweeting, like you're not just taking half a second to retweet. It's like, you have to take the time to choose the linen to then stitch the thing. You know, it, it requires thought and time and digestion. Mm -hmm where it seems like he doesn't do any of those things. They just, it's just word vomit that just blurts out and then he denies it and then he blurts something else. I just love that this project, there has to be time to reflect. I think that it, yes. Uh, well, first of all, just on a very visual level, you're seeing it differently. Yeah. You're not even, even before you read it, um, you're seeing it differently. And that's still, uh, I mean, I'm, there, of course, because of who I follow, I'm seeing I'm seeing embroidery and stitching and textile on my feed, but not you know not an abundance, and it's still sort of new and refreshing to me if I see something stitched or I see it in some other form. When I see it stitched, I know how much time it took, mm -hmm. and when you're looking at tiny pricks, you're looking at the gift of someone's time. And we know that we don't have a lot of time right now. Yeah. People are, are strapped in so many different ways. And it's a difference between someone, you know, ordering takeout and cooking a meal for you. And, and as you know, the handmade has speaks a totally different language. And this is handmade by people who are not necessarily artists or don't have a practice. In fact, most do not have a stitching based practice. Mm -hmm. uh, at all, and I wouldn't call myself really an embroiderer. I use thread and I use textile, but I'm not technically um, <laughs> not technically very good at, using, at, at traditional embroidery. I don't I don't know how to make the hand look as invisible as other artists do. Where you look at something, and you think, is that stitched or is that not stitched? I feel like you look at everything of mine, and you can tell it's stitched. And that's to me sort of the point. I want you to know that I made it. Um, right. I'm coming forward to you with my drawing saying, here, I made this. Will yeah. You, will you pay attention to it? Will you put it up on your wall? Yeah. Will you share it? Will you spend a moment with me to think about these words? Yeah. How many people, how many contributors do you have now? Do you even I, know? I don't even know. And, and part of it's not just because of the pandemic and, and pieces are being shipped to one place and, and I'm in another place right now. But I also don't know because I haven't had throughout this process a lot of infrastructure support. I do it all myself. Now, whenever I partner with a gallery or with someone, there are wonderful things that come with that. <laughs> a publicist, right. <laughs> you know, a, a space, different things. And I've had a lot of help. I really don't want to minimize the help I've had from other people. There are people who have formed chapters. There are people who have done a lot of work. But right now, at this particular moment, I don't have all those numbers because I haven't created the database that I would love to have someday. And just imagine the ways you can catalog this. I mean, the history of the person, the history of the textile, the history yeah. of the quote. I mean, we have these three different threads that are, are constantly going through this project. 
So I can tell you that there are almost 4,000 pieces and the goal is to have 5,000 by the end of the year. But honestly, Danielle, if you can have 5,000, you can have 10,000. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are that many people who are upset about this presidency. Um, that's one of the incredible things to realize is, and you know, this is a runner and, and I've done a couple of marathons. If you can run a mile, you can run a marathon. Right. Basically. You know, right? Yeah, well, it might not be smooth, but you can do it. <laughs> it might not be pretty, <laughs> but you can do it. And so there are hundreds and hundreds of participants. Um, there are. Are they from all over the world? Or are they all American? Or oh no, they're from they're from all over the world. There are two small chapters: one in the UK and one in Brazil as well. There are artists there who have are doing some doing the same using the same methodology and then they send in their pieces but their their pieces combine the language of trump and then what is happening in brazil and the uk right with their particular yeah. leadership so um in that sense and i think if i had more bandwidth i could you could actually have this project in every single country because everyone's impacted I've yeah isn't that crazy isn't that, I was just saying yeah. to my husband, like, you know, everyone keeps saying like, oh, you know, the world, the world is falling apart right now and whatever. And I thought it's not really, it's really America. Like all of our news and everything is, is America centric, you know, and that's where so much of the stuff is happening. Like if I actually stop and take a breath and don't watch Seth and you know, turn, turn my computer off for a bit. My area is lovely. Life yeah. is pretty good, you know? So I have to do that every now and then to just be like, and everyone can do that, even if you're in the States. Like, stop and like, just enjoy the tree in your front yard for a moment because it's, everything feels so overwhelming and awful. It's like the world isn't falling apart. I wondered, I've often sort of in my fantasy world wondered, like, could you have um, a case against Trump for... Uh, a kind of pollution, a kind of toxic pollution, because what he's done, and and I'm sure you're you're coming up against this, and many of your listeners are, but he's taking up a lot of media bandwidth yes. that should be used for book releases, should be used to discuss what's happening in Armenia. I mean, it should be, I mean, Syrian refugees. It should be used to discuss climate change. Yeah, he is not only distracting us from the good things and from the the sort of the, the peace that could exist in other places, but he's also taking up very, very valuable media real estate that could be used for something other than his, you know, presidential pageant. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's upsetting when I get my local paper and there's something about Trump, there's, that shouldn't be happening really. Yeah. Yeah, um, but they know it'll sell a paper. They know it'll sell a paper. And, and oh, and by the way, you know, it is relatively important what he does. Um, it's not of no consequence. Yeah. That's, that's the very tricky part of it. So how do you let something in that is not um, very safe and not very pleasant? But you also can't really ignore it because that's not, I think to some degree responsible either. Yeah. Certainly don't expose yourself the way I, I've exposed myself if it doesn't make you comfortable and you you, you can't do it. <laughs> I don't know how you um, do it, honestly. Like, uh, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I'm so glad that you are doing it, but 
it, I think it would break me. But I'm doing it because you and I are talking. I mean, this is right. not, this is a luxury. Being politically active on this level, being able to do this work, I'm reminded that I'm able to do it. And that really keeps me going. And right now, I wouldn't want anyone to take this work away from me because right. yeah. I am exactly where I should be. And that is not a feeling one has very often. <laughs> no, that is very true. When you when you sort of find the thing that strikes yes. the chord and you can keep doing it every day with passion and energy, that that is um, a beautiful miracle. Um, you know, I was going to say about 4,000 pieces trying to get to 5,000 and why not 10,000? Um, my husband and I were just saying, you know, he's like, even if he gets voted out, he's not going away. Yes, he's right. And um, crazy things are still going to happen and be said. So I think you'll get to your 10,000, no problem. <laughs> well, and also keep in mind that the the record is, so, so the idea of a presidential record or papers or a monument or a memorial, they're going to be, if he's, when he's voted out, um, people who are going to come forward and tell us this is what happened. And you and your husband sitting around having coffee in the morning are going to be interested to know what actually happened yeah because right now we're seeing a show and we're not seeing behind the scenes necessarily well we know behind the scenes there's a lot of COVID but we don't know <laughs> no real <laughs> it's a bad production but you know in, in the Shakespearean sense we're not in the pit like we we, we don't we are we're only seeing a fraction of the stage and yeah. we're not seeing all the players and that's going to come forward I, I mean the I wonder how better. long it'll take for that to come forward uh, I, I mean, why hasn't it happened already? I mean, I don't, um, you know, when will we really know what Pence really thinks? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I know there's so many things that it's just like, I would just love, I just want so badly to pull back that curtain. You know, it's like, it's happening quickly in terms of politics because it took so long for other things to come forward. Uh, the Viet, the war in Vietnam. I mean, think about it. There are things that used to be sealed and then they were yeah. released. But I was watching uh, CNN last night, and then there's some like a TV show about Comey. Like, is it Jeff? Daniels right. Yeah. 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 Comey. I was like, wait, what? When did that? <laughs> yeah, didn't, <laughs> didn't that just, just happen? <laughs> didn't I just see Comey at Politicon playing himself? You know. So <laughs> so, you know, how many made-for-TV movies are we going to see? How much are we going to chew on this as a culture? How much will you, as Canadians? How much will will I? Um, people ask me when and how the project's going to end. And, and I say, this project is tethered to what's happening politically. So in this sense, I have a project and methodology, but I don't have an ending at all. Right. And I Which don't, is, it's kind of exciting. It is kind of exciting <laughs> if you're comfortable with the unknown. It's not exciting when I think about the potential damage of this, you know, this upcoming election and, um, I try to think about the education that we're all getting, not just Americans, but this is how it works. I mean, we're seeing democracy sort of broken down into these small pieces. And I've never, honestly, I never know what's going to come into play. The, the U.S. post system. I mean, I thought that was a solid, boring thing. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out that's front and center and it's interfered with shipping pieces and, you yeah. know, my work. But then who could have imagined a year ago, you know, this pandemic? I mean, when you look at what's happened within the Trump presidency, it's a lot. Yeah, I know. And it's, um, I was saying to my son, cause he turned 14 this summer and he's very aware of everything. He pays attention and 
you know, has lots of questions. And um, I've said, I've said to him, like, you are living through an insane moment in history. And um, I was like, you should write some of this stuff down because when you're a grandpa, you know, like he, my, my nephew's five, he's not going to remember all this stuff. Right. Um, but Charlie's 14 and he's really going to remember it. And it's like, you lived through COVID, you lived through the Trump presidency. Um, I've told the story on the podcast before, so I'll do it quickly. But um, when he was, when Trump was elected, I had a, um, one of my books, I forget which one, I think Big Jerk had just come out. And so we were going to Seattle and Portland to do some um, book readings and Charlie and Greg were going to come with me and he was nine or just turned 10 maybe and uh, so off we went um, thinking <laughs> we were supposed to leave the morning of the whoever had won and so we're going to bed and uh, Trump was in the lead and Charlie was yeah nine or ten and he was like Hillary's gonna win right I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, California hasn't come in. We're good. We're good. You know, go to bed. And when you wake up, Hillary will be president and we'll drive to Seattle. And you told like, him a bedtime story. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, here's a fun fictional story for you. And, here's a fairy tale. Uh, yeah. So he went to bed. We stayed up, watched, saw that he won. And then we had to leave at 530 or 6 in the morning. And so Charlie woke up. And the first thing this little kid says, did Hillary win? And I said, um, no. And he was like, what? And he was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to America. And I was like, buddy, it's fine. We're going to Seattle and Portland. Like, we're good. So we went. There were protests. Um, I don't know if you remember, but there was like huge protests in Portland. And then the anarchists got involved. So things were getting destroyed. And so we were in a hotel right downtown. I think it was like the Hilton. So it was like, you know, we were somewhere I thought was safe. But that's exactly where the riots were happening. And so it was one in the morning. We were on the top floor and you could see the feet of the helicopter outside of our window. And they were throwing um, the flash bomb things at the crowd. But you can't tell that they're, it seems like gunfire, right? And he's bawling and he's like, can we please go back to Canada? (laughs) And so now he won't go to the States. He's like, I'm not going until there's a new president. And it makes him nervous when I go, you know, like I had to go to New York in March right before everything kind of hit. And he was like, please don't go. And I was like, buddy, it's okay. I'm just going, I'm going to do this thing and come back home. And um, it's just, he'll go to Hawaii. <laughs> Hawaii, doesn't, <laughs> Hawaii doesn't count. Make but anywhere, for Hawaii. Yeah. But anywhere else, he's really nervous. And so, um, you know, to be a Canadian kid who, you know, like you would think has nothing to do with any of this has been deeply affected. That's an amazing story. Um, And it also is that moment when he realizes that you don't know actually what's going to happen, that even when we tell them everything's going to be okay, um, we don't necessarily know that. Yeah. Well, he just asked me, do you think Biden's going to win? And I was like, you know what? I'm not going down that road. I had an interest. I was in the States and my daughters were boarding at their school here in Victoria. And of course, I didn't think that Trump would win, and nor had I sort of prepared as a, I hadn't thought about what it would be like for them to be here and how I would comfort them if Trump won. I hadn't thought about who would talk to them. And all of their peers in boarding school sort of, um, I, you know, not, not, don't, that's not 
making it sound too dramatic, but comforted them, sort of formed, you know, protected them, formed a circle around them. I mean, it didn't help them process the pain that they were feeling, help them process the confusion of what had happened. And I just hadn't prepared them for any other outcome other than Hillary winning. No, I don't think anybody had. I think it seemed like such a joke that he was even the Republican nominee. I was like, oh man, SNL is so lucky. <laughs> you know, like this is just comic, you know, genius. And then yeah. it's like, he won. Um, it, it's just so surreal. And so, you know, we're heading into like, we're now, well, even when this, with the, when this episode comes up, we are going to be moments away from the actual election. And it's just like, I can't, at this point, I don't even guess anymore. I mean, yeah. day to day, you can't even guess what's going to happen in, in today's news cycle. So it's like, I don't know. It's it's just such a surreal time. But I, I, you know, like all of this to say, you know, I was saying to Charlie, you should write some of this down. And it's exactly what your project is, is like this year, this time in history is going to be one for the history books. Like this will be mm -hmm. stuff that decades from now kids are learning about because it will just be the weirdest time. Yes. And he's writing it. And the, well, and the difference between you were mentioning your nephew, my nephew, um, my daughter came back here from Montreal, from McGill, and we, as a family, decided that she would follow, you know, quarantine, self-isolating guidelines, even though they're not enforced coming from Montreal. They are from the States, but they're not from Montreal, which I think they should be because there's COVID there. But anyway, and she's in our basement and, and my, her nephew hasn't seen her in quite a while, is five, and he's outside in the yard talking to her through the window. <laughs> and before he runs off to go play, he says to her, I love you, I miss you, and I hate COVID. So Aww. he's five. He is remembering, but the difference between James and Charlie is that Charlie can tell a story about what's happening. At 14, you can tell a story with yourself as a character. Yeah. And you're, you're working with your memories of what it felt like. Whereas, you know, I, I'm sure that James will remember this period of time when he came and lived with his aunt and uncle in, right. in Victoria and left home and hasn't been home. He's in a new school. He hasn't even stepped foot in the school. Yeah you know, these, these kids are experiencing all these different things, but you're right. It, it's hard to, um, I, I fluctuate between really trying to tell my children, this is a really, really important time. And just even my 27 year old, but, and also just letting them live their lives because you and I didn't, I didn't grow up with that. This is a really important time in your life. You yeah. Create something about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Good point. Good point. No, but it's interesting because it's, we know it is, and they don't necessarily know it is. And some part of them has to live out the normal part of this. Yeah. Does that make any sense? And that's like, why I was so glad that school here started yes, again, because he was yes. starting high school. This was his first year of high school. Oh. He's going to my old high school, which is super weird. Um, and, you know, they, they stopped school in March and did online learning until June. And I was like, and it was fine because it was the middle school he'd been at for a couple of years. So he knew all the teachers, you know, whatever. But this was a new school. It's high mm -hmm. school. I was like, I want him to have the most normal as possible experience. So, I mean, but they, he doesn't know high school any other way. So to him, this is just what yes. high school is. And I think for the five-year-olds too, who are, who are starting kindergarten online, like they don't know any different. So to them, it's like, all right. Like kids I find are so flexible because they're just like, if they don't know any better, they're like, all right, I guess this is just what we're doing now. And then where there's a lesson in there for us, but yes. it's just saying that I'm realizing 
you know, yet again, that the use of these textiles for this project is because we did know something different. And these textiles represent a different era. They, they suggest something in the past, you know, a grandmother, an aunt, a time when somebody cared for you or made something for you. You know, there is, that is a really important, what you just said is really important to this project as well, um, that we feel a nostalgia mm -hmm. for what we've lost. Mm -hmm. Well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really do. Um, I wanted to ask you before we do our not so speedy speed round. Um, so the general reaction, I mean, clearly you've got zillions of followers and people are participating from around the world. So I'm going to assume a lot of it is positive, but you must, you must get some hate comments and stuff. Well, I would first sort of like the, the use of the word positive in this case, I think is a little bit different than um, the positive feedback that you get because <clears throat> it's positive, positive. I, the, the reaction to the project is a, um, a positive negative, if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, a lot of the reaction that I get to the project is, is sometimes hard because, not because it's hateful, but because people are sharing the ways in which this is painful for them. And uh, you'll see, I just posted before we spoke a piece, three, a group of pieces um, by an artist and I put a trigger warning because one of them is part of E. Jean Carroll's testimony, a statement about Trump's assault. Oh. Uh, and so, so just in terms of getting even a positive reaction for me, it's a positive as someone will even, will, will look at it and like it. Um, because I know that they're putting themselves in a situation where they, there are going to be negative feelings that come with these positive experiences. Right. Um, in terms of raw hate, I don't get a lot of it. And it may be just because it's not, um, I certainly don't seek it. I'm not looking for a fight. Um, yeah. and also I think if you're going to take the time to look at, you know, an account with embroidery and stitching, you're you're not coming from a place of you know full-on rage <laughs> against you know against someone who is against trump if that makes any sense um i do get criticism and i always try to listen to it very openly because it's helpful to me um for example people say this is a waste of time and then i think well what is a productive use of my time right now and if i'm helping people, and this is before the pandemic, people felt isolated, they couldn't talk about politics, and this was a space for them to do that. And then when the pande pandemic hit and everyone was indoors, this is a space to be active. I mean, I was already very active on Instagram. I already was posting multiple times a day. So um, I think, well, you know, it, so it causes me to think. Um, I do block people who are rude. Okay, um, and I don't tag the NRA, and I there's certain things that if you tag them, I will get a cluster of followers who say a bunch of hateful things. Like, right. um, you know, if you're against gun control, why are you killing babies? And I'm like, I can't, I can't even respond to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't mean to laugh about it because it's it's a little upsetting that someone thinks that way, but. I learned from um, the owners of the gallery and the, that I had a show in San Francisco who are both designers and we went out for lunch and I said, how do I handle, because then there was 600 pieces, I had fewer than 10,000 followers, but I said, how do I, 
who do I engage with? Do I have to engage with people who are critical of not just me, but also are, are really in favor of the things that Trump is saying and doing? And they said, it's, this is your restaurant or this is your bar and people are coming into your establishment and you have the right to ask them to leave if they're bothering you or they're bothering other customers. Um, even though you have a public account, you're not a public figure, you can block people. And that's been my go-to mode is if there's not a conversation to be had, sometimes I'll try to engage if it seems like someone's given some thought to their criticism of me or of the project. Um, but mostly I, you know, I try not to overreact to any of that. Yeah. That's a really, really nice analogy. Yeah. It makes yeah. me feel safe to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. I try and like, I, I'm very lucky in that, you know, my community is amazing, amazing mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Um, but every now and then you'll, I'll get something and, um, I don't know. I feel the like I'm like I get so upset and bothered by it, and then I just I sort of thought thought the same thing. It's like, well, this is my house, um, and I don't like that. You know, if somebody came into my house and said some stuff, I'd be like, well, it's time for you to get going now. <laughs> right, right. You just vomited my floor. Can you leave? Now? <laughs> Can you get going? Um, and so I don't. You know, so now I don't. I don't feel bad about deleting. And you know, or <clears throat> and and if they write back and go, oh, I can't believe you deleted that. I delete that too because. It's like, you know, I, I'm not gonna start your own account and say whatever you want over there. That's and right. I, and this I won't may go not visit be, you. This may not be for you, is right. what I've said to people. Yeah, which is fine. Which is fine. I have gotten criticism, maybe that you have some insight into this. There are people who are upset that I've used this medium for Trump's words. I mean, so they're admitting that the work is powerful. Oh, and they're saying, effective. how could you have ruined this beautiful... <laughs> <laughs> the way and I want to say to them, I got it at a thrift store. It was not being preserved in the Smithsonian. <laughs> yeah. You broke into the Smithsonian. But what is that all the best do, do you think? What what is that idea about? That it's somehow a violation. Well, I mean, I think it's it's more powerful that you're doing it on those those pieces because of that. Um, I think those are probably just more traditional people who are mm -hmm. like. I mean, I have just started doing the, did you see the piece I posted last night of my big giant 36 inch panel that I've been working on? Oh, I haven't yet, but I'm going to look at it. Well, I've been using like um, costume jewelry and um, um, like vintage ceramics and whatever. And they're all just found yeah. at thrift shops, but I'm sure some of them are worth stuff, yeah. but I don't know. Right. And I just like glue them on and so anyway this thing is huge and it's covered in some stuff that I bet is worth a ton of money and I I said to my husband oh there are going to be people who know about this stuff who are going to be <laughs> incensed that I smashed some fancy vase and glued half of it onto this pile of paint they'll just be like oh you could have taken that on antiques roadshow yes so anyway I don't know but I'm just still doing it anyway so I can see I can see their view but like you know that's just their opinion about how, you know, they can have a, a drawer full of doilies if they want. That's right. With nothing there have been it. a couple of people who have been upset about um, thinking that it was something other than what it was, like walking into the sh an exhibit. And, you know, probably a friend said, oh, come see this embroidery exhibit. And oh. they they're walking into something else. Um, that is. Yeah, they're expecting kittens and baskets <laughs> of flowers. Nope. Yes, that, that has happened. If, it if you're really completely surprised and you're, you don't like being surprised, 
then, but that's not really hate or criticism. That's someone's personal experience yeah. of, your, of your work. Yeah. Which is, which is going to happen in any case. You know, I always say like, you're never going to make work that everyone loves. Yeah. Um, and this is, it is polarizing and that's why it's powerful. That's why I, I think it's so, you know, that's why I've been following since the moment I found you. And I think I did find you through that show at um, Lingua Franca. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I found you first because uh, I, you know, I knew about your work. I'm not sure when you found me. <laughs> it would have I been much later than I found you. Um, what, what year was that? But, was that 2019? It was 2019. I always say last summer, but of course it wasn't last summer. Right. Um, and they yes. covered every inch of every wall. They did something really amazing. And I, I know I've shared with you some of that experience, but what Rochelle and Lingua Franca really had a complete vision a fearless vision, which was so helpful to me because I, I was, a, I was worried about offending people a little bit. Um, but she just, you know, front and center, the entire space you walked in and you felt it was like being inside a Twitter feed. It was a yeah. sculptural rendering of a Twitter feed. And she was very clear that, you know, if, if you don't like it, then, then don't come in. And this is, you know, this is again, I have to say that there's so much love around this project. I mean, I, I know that participants feel it. I watch them on Instagram support each other. I mean, there are the relationships that develop. Oh, it's like I'm sure. watching your kids grow up. Like there's just a whole world out there of love and support that far, far outweighs anything negative that I might experience through this project. And it did really grow that summer, 2019. There was something about being in New York because everyone Trump, yeah. everyone in New York already knew who Trump was. Yeah. Um, you know, how somebody who, who, given the way New Yorkers felt about Trump, could then go on to a much bigger stage and have more power. They're sort of scratching their heads and pulling out their hair. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of things about that moment. But again, for people like you to find it that way, because we do look, um, you know, we do look for inspiration. We're always looking for new artists. We're always looking for new ways of seeing what we're doing. And the way we do that is we look to the outside world in addition to our own backyard. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think what was so like, whoa, about that show was just the um, amount of work. Like, you know, it's one thing to scroll through the Instagram feed and see it all, but to, to like you said, like, walk into it and be basically inside a quilt of Twitter yeah, was so powerful um, that you kind of couldn't not pay attention. And um, I feel like that's how I first found it or something. And I was just like, oh, okay. And I remember writing a post, like mm -hmm. sometimes I joke in my post that it was like, I couldn't write this fast enough. And I remember feeling like that. Like as soon as I found it, I was like, oh, started like gathering images um, because I think for me, it was like medicine. I was like, oh, okay, someone else gets it. Um, I also love, I, you know, I've said if I ever did my master's, which I will never do, but if I ever did my master's, it would be, um, I would love to do something about art versus craft and that weird line in between. And so I love it when people use, you know, quote unquote, traditional or domestic or whatever um, mediums like embroidery on vintage fabrics to do something edgy and fine arty. 
And that's exactly what this is. So it was right up my alley. Plus it made me feel so much better to know that these triggers for me were triggers for thousands of other people. <laughs> Isn't and that a funny thing? <laughs> yeah, it made me feel so much less crazy because you're like, wait, do, do people think this is normal? Like, do people think this is okay? And so to be like, oh, thank God. Okay, no, not, not, every, you know, people don't think this is okay. So um, I'm so glad that, you know, that I found this and that, you know, through this conversation, I was like, why haven't I made one? Yes. I'm going to make one. (laughs) Well, because this is your moment. Um, I was, I was thinking as you're talking about the experience of seeing them in person, there are some moments when I feel overwhelmed and sometimes it's really when I have to carry, literally carry, not metaphorically (laughs) carry the collection with me in my suitcases. And I realized I'm only carrying a you know, an eighth of the collection and I have two huge suitcases. And what I want to have eventually is an exhibit with every single piece in the same place. Because I was just going to say, I was just going to ask, what do you think? I Smithsonian? I think Smithsonian. I, I, somewhere, I mean, you know, I, I almost don't know if it matters where it's so much more important to me that it all be together because you walked into the show in Linger Frank and you thought this is enormous, but you, but you didn't know that you and then it grew from there. When the show went up at Lingua Franca, it was every piece. And we were able to say every piece is here. Yeah. But because the show was so big, it very quickly, there were hundreds of more pieces right. less than a month later. And people would come in and say, where's sent her back? And I would say, well, that hadn't been said yet. <laughs> there, this is a time capsule within the time capsule. And can you imagine, like, Danielle, what, which piece did you see first? And at what moment did you see it? And seeing it exhibited almost like a like those old, you know, the timeline that you'd have on you know, the wall of your classroom in school. Yeah. You know, like where, which quote did you first engage with? When did you first engage with the project? Because you're both reading his words and you're seeing the project. They're, they're the same thing when you walk into the exhibit. So there's, there are these two different timelines that you're working with. Um, and I, I just can't imagine well, I can imagine, but I, I don't know how I'll feel seeing it all. I think for me personally, it'll be quite overwhelming and emotional yeah. because yeah. this is, you know, literally two years of my life and, and not going on, you know, vacations and not taking a day off and not, you know, and I'm not feeling, I don't feel sorry for myself. I'm choosing to do this, but, yeah. but there are, there are choices I have made and, and people I love that I'm not spending time with and things I love to do that I'm not doing to do this. Yeah, I think you're going to walk into wherever that is and fall on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There have and to I... be beds. There have to be cots where you can take a break <laughs> and someone can pat your forehead with a moist towel. Okay, maybe, it's okay. Maybe sugar cookies and that weird orange. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's some. Take a break. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. How would you cleanse your palate between each wall? Or I mean, <clears> me <throat> and I could have so much fun imagining all the interventions. <laughs> oh my God. I would need chips. For sure. Oh my God. So you walk in and you get a bag of chips. Yeah. And (laughs) maybe maybe chocolate on the way out. No, ketchup flavored chips, which you can only get here. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think it would be emotional for everyone um, experiencing it in that scale and that like amount of surrounding. But for you, uh, it's also a time capsule of your life right now. (laughs) You know, like it would be amazing and overwhelming. I'm sure it'll happen. I'm uh, and hopefully we can travel and Promise. I can come. <laughs> Promise. <laughs> <clears throat> um, what was I going to ask you? Um, 
Okay. So, well, in that vein, um, is there anything coming up? Like, are there any shows coming up or collaborations or anything that you want to tell people about? Or do you want to just say, keep on sending you stuff or? Oh, well, please keep on sending me stuff. Um, I'm making one this weekend. It's fantastic. It is not, it is not over um, by any stretch of the imagination right now. And by, by the time this comes out, um, some of these shows won't be up, but right now it's in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and that's exciting for a variety of reasons, but one of which is the work is being featured with Jesse Duquette's work, v.daily.don, and he's one of those other people who's embarked on this insane odyssey of tracking Trump on a daily basis. Uh-huh. But also it's at Portland Textile Month, uh, Culture House in Washington, D.C., which is up to the end of December. So Tiny Pricks is actually in Washington. Wow. And they're, they're following all the guidelines. Um it was in Boston with Beacon Gallery this summer, and again, following all the COVID-related guidelines, and it'll be in New York at Plant House. So it, there'll be a period of time this fall when it's both in New York and Washington, and before the pandemic, I had plans to take it everywhere, but yeah, you know, these are different times. So, um, and then after that, I'm, I have a few things coming up, which I can't you know, I don't have all the details about yet, but I am seeking that enormous exhibit because my plan is that he's going to be voted out. It's going to be decisive. And we will be looking back on all of this from a new place in a year from now. And I would love to meet you at an exhibit with all the pieces and we can talk about, wow, what a crazy time period that was. Oh my God, I can't wait for that day. Yeah, me too. For so many reasons. Yes. <laughs> so many reasons. Um, Oh, that is, that is also awesome. Okay. I can't wait. I'm going to go to my thrift shop today, find some random thing. And I'm going to quote something he said about Canada. Yes. Um, I, one of the highlights was I, that I, Justin Trudeau, Trudeau was given a piece. Um, oh I'd yes. Done, you told me that. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I don't know where he put it, but. How I did that happen? So there's a program, CBC Info Man, and they, they do a sort of their, they're like a Seth Meyers kind of comedic, but news show. And they contacted me last fall and said, we were doing a political wrap up and our, our producer and our anchor is going to New York and where will you be? Um, and can, can we, t- we'd like to cover the project. So they were in New York. I think it was interviewing Jane Fonda, maybe who said, beware of good looking liberal men. But then they, <laughs> they were coming through um, West Ark bridge uh where i had the show and so they interviewed me and this is exactly the time that trump said he's two-faced you know when when trudeau and the other oh, leaders were right. hot, hot mic i was like of course perfect timing and they said to me do you have a piece because we're going to be talking to trudeau later do you have a piece that we can give to him we don't know if he'll you know receive it or what you know just do you have something we can pass on if we can and i was like yeah i do <laughs> so um that was the, uh, yeah, he's two-faced. And then Trump later said, he's a nice guy. So that was how that <laughs> happened. Um, that, I wonder where he's got it. <laughs> Justin, I'm sure he's a listener of this podcast. Yeah, Justin, I'm sure too. Yeah, if you're but, listening, let us know. It's in a drawer with ketchup chips. And other yeah, yeah. <laughs> with his stash of fancy socks and ketchup chips. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, okay. Are you ready for the not-so-speedy speed round? Sure. Okay. Appetizer or dessert? Or both? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Neither. I think these days I have so little time to eat. I could almost (laughs) not eat right now, except that I have to eat. But um, 
you know, I'm not an appetizer or dessert person. I'm kind of like the basic main meal. Which, wow. Which I hope to improve and become a dessert person, I think. I think that yeah. would be a good habit. Yeah. yeah. I'm always an appetizer person. Oh, I like the I like the savory. Well, the chip should give that away. But um, during the <laughs> during the pandemic, I'm like, let's have both. Oh wait, are chips an appetizer? Because then well, maybe they could I be. Say, yeah, then they clearly I have chips in my mind. So then yeah, I, that, yeah, chips. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, best place you have found vintage fabric. Oh, that is such a hard question. Have you ever That's had? Like, a, do like, I have, have a favorite you, child? Um, <laughs> have you? Do you? No, don't answer that. Have no. you ever? Wa- is there? I've been in a place like somewhere in Canada or the states or somewhere where you've yeah. walked in and been like, "This is a freaking gold mine." Yeah. Um, so my favorite place really is not a place that I go into, but is when people send me textiles. And someone recently sent me one that had been part of their wedding album album and it was a blue textile it was just something something blue um so my very favorite place to find them is actually when they find me in your mailbox in my mailbox people say I'm not I can't stitch a piece or I have stitched a piece but I want you to take my mother's whatever my grandmother's or this textile and I want you to make a piece out of it and that to me is my you know favorite place to find it because I know that they're on the other end waiting to see what I'll do with their piece yeah, what it an honor. Who donated pieces, and I did a workshop in Tijuana with Build Peace, and there was a little girl who um, was in this um, shelter because they had tried to cross the border and couldn't be sent back, and, and she came down and sat at the table the whole day, and um, I don't speak Spanish, and she didn't speak English, but I gave her one of the textiles that somebody had sent into the project, and when I took a photo of her with it, the person who had donated it to the project saw the little girl holding it and was so excited to see where her textile had traveled to. So that's oh. another favorite part when it comes to seeking and finding textiles. That's so beautiful. Um, I was going to ask, actually, do you still do workshops or are you too busy? <laughs> I just did my first large virtual workshop for Portland Textile Month um, with Beacon Gallery on Sunday. Oh. And it was new. I don't do them because I can't do them right now. Right. Um, but you will. My, like, you I would, would love again. to. They're they're amazing. It's it's always an amazing experience to do a workshop. Um, I'm kind of flattered because my son said that one of his friends at school said, "Can I make a piece with your mom?" Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> I know. I'm going to have chips, and they're going to do some yeah. stitching. <laughs> um, I would love to do more workshops. It's it's hard to do now. Yeah. 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 But I see, I, when you said that earlier, I was like, oh, I should follow up because I know that people are going to message me and be like, does she still do workshops? Yeah. Okay. I would love to do, I love doing them with other people. Um, I, I would be, if people got a group together and said, can we, you know, have a Zoom call with you and will you talk us through it? I'm happy to do it. I'm, oh, I'm always amazing. happy to make time for the project. Um, yeah, and talk you know, to people. I, those, those are the most magical moments. I used to do these workshops called Girl Crush. And yes. um, they were, it was usually for about 15 women and um, they were all day. It was like a nine to five kind of thing, but they would always go from like nine till 8 p.m. And then we'd usually go out for dinner afterwards because the conversation wasn't done. And then so many of us have remained friends now for years because those conversations that you have that are outside of the curriculum or whatever you're actually there to do is the most powerful connecting um, you know, those were the special moments come. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. No, it's that. true. And there's something about the hands being busy. Yep. We are free to just 
talk in a, in a different way. And it often, it also can bring together people who otherwise wouldn't come together. I've had that uh, at workshops to people yeah. who are very different. And what I love is when somebody has more experience than someone else and sort of leans over and says, let me help you do that. And, and you instantly see this connection develop. Here's a question, men, how many, do oh. you have- I was like, yes or no? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the next speed. Appetizer dessert? I was yeah. <laughs> How uh, many men participate? Not enough. Yeah. What, do you, what um, would you say the percentage is, um, like female to male? Like 90, uh, 10? Oh, 100 to zero? No. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, there, there are very few men. Maybe there's been a total. I, okay, well, I should preface it by saying I don't always know whether or not someone's a man or a woman. True, true. I, I don't. Um, you would think that I would know a lot about participants, but I only generally know what they want to share with me. And some people don't share that. Some people right. submit anonymously for different personal and professional reasons. But um, let me say this. Uh, there are not a lot of men who have participated, maybe 50. Um, but the breakdown in terms of you know media response or um, go- coming to exhibits or response to the project it, there isn't a lot of difference. It's the actual making that is quite imbalanced. You know, there's a yeah. imbalance. Um, but in terms of seeing and appreciating the project, um, I'm not. I don't experience. You know, I, I have the same conversations with men as I do with women. Um, right. And you, you know, we could do a whole podcast about why more men are not participating in this mm-hmm. project in this medium. Um, but most of the men who do participate are connected to a woman who's participated. So you make a piece and then your husband's like, I'm going to make a piece or your son's like, I'm going to make a piece because they, they, they've seen you do it or they want to do it with you. Right. Right. They're Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Well, any guys listening, send Please. one in. Yep. Do. Um, okay. First song you slow dance to. Oh, um... this must've been in a gym in Smithers. <laughs> you know that gym <laughs> i do it's probably looks uh, exactly like my gym is it, is it our i'm gonna say like jay giles band or um ario speedway <laughs> <laughs> um you know air supply more love um oh, yeah i mean i, I at all and you know smithers also it wasn't just a song you slow dance to but um you know it was the song where you sort of stayed after school and met in the classroom and, oh. you know, play, you got a recess and lunch, we could play songs on a tape recorder. So you know, you'd go back in the classroom and listen to music again after school. Um, yeah. Remember those gym slow dances? Yeah. Good times. Good times. Well, I know. And like Charlie is supposed, that's the new world he's supposed to be in, but now their Halloween dance is canceled. It would have been his first dance. Jeez. I know. Well, so, you could have it. I mean, maybe, maybe you know, there's something else that replaces that. I mean, music is yeah. so much more accessible now than it was when, you know, that was an opportunity yeah. to listen to music. <laughs> it was like sort of a concert, really, if you look it's at our middle true. school dances. <laughs> yeah. Were you one of those kids that sat, I, I would sit with my um, tape recorder listening to the radio and then hit record right oh, as yeah. the song I wanted started. But then the DJ would always talk over the first, like, 15 seconds. You'd be like, shut up. I, I need to the, get, you know, she's like the wind, full yeah. song. <laughs> I would take our, our radio into the closet. I don't know why. I, I don't remember why that was. Maybe just so no one would bother me, I could hide. <laughs> and listen to, at night, the Vancouver radio stations. 
LG 73. So that, you know, it would be like a message coming in the dark. <laughs> yes. I remember, Liz, I had a clock radio in my room. I remember being about 11 and um, um, like a virgin had come out by Madonna. Well, I just thought that was the coolest song I'd ever heard. So I had it like cranked up at like six in the morning and my mom came in, what are you listening to? <laughs> <laughs> well, and what were we watching? I don't know if you've gone back to like the breakfast club or Greece or. Oh yeah. Drink and I've been like, Oh, this movie is not how I remember it. <laughs> no, I know. I, but I still, I always, I have a TV and my studio with Netflix. So I always throw that stuff on in the background because I've seen them so many times. I don't even have to watch it to know what's happening. Yeah. Oh, As I'm talking I, to you. I think that it can, you know, we're, Northern Canadian adolescence is not been properly documented. I no, I, I know. <laughs> Actually, you know what? There's a movie being filmed in Penticton right now with um, Eric McCormick, Will from Will and Grace. Uh-huh. And it's like this coming of age movie. And it's actually supposed to be set in the Okanagan. Like they're not pretending that it's somewhere else. <laughs> that's right. I'm yes, so that's right. BC has been on screen. It's just undisguised. It's yeah, undisguised. it's always somewhere in the States. And yeah, so I'm very, and so I just drove by the, the high school there is like their, like the lot where they've got all of the trailers and stuff. And I'm like, I can't wait to see it because yeah, who knows? Like, I think it's supposed to be like an 80s coming of age. Anyway, we'll see. Um, what was I just going to say? Madonna. Uh, oh, oh middle, middle school I know days. what I was going to say. I was very angry yesterday. I told my husband, I... You know how Netflix, like some stuff will come and go, like they'll, there'll be something, a movie that's been on there for ages and then they take it away and then it comes back, whatever. So I was very much in a footloose kind of mood as you are some days. And I was like, I thought, well, I'll just see if it's back on because it hadn't been for a while. And I see that it's there and I was like, oh my God, it was the new Footloose. <laughs> you were cheated. I was like, what a travesty. I am not watching. I, you know, no, I will not. And, and so anyway, I, I got on a little 1980s high horse about that. My Anywho. nephew is obsessed with Back to the Future, um, which, you know, Michael J. Fox, we can, we can sort of reminisce. Uh, but Thank Back to the boy. Future... Yeah, that's, I mean, it's very profound, Back to the Future. I definitely see the movie differently now. I have a lot of empathy for the parents. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Oh, my God. That's a great movie. Yeah. And, and apparently it, my nephew, who's become something of a film critic, says that um, two is not so good, but Back to the Future three is really good. So he's going to be Marty for Halloween. I don't know. He's going to knock on doors in his house. I'm not sure what he's going to be doing. But The, the five-year-old? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, he's being Marty. That is the best. <laughs> Whoever takes him trick or treating has to be Doc. I don't think he can go because they'll be back in California. I think. But, oh. but I said they just trick or treat within the house. Yeah, there you go. Oh man. Oh, it's a weird day. Okay, um, weird time. Okay, I have the last. This is the last one that I'm gonna get. Let you on with your day. Um, have you ever sung in front of a public crowd? Um, no, not a public crowd luckily for them but I <laughs> um I did my son went to a boarding school last two years of high school and part of um one of the exercises or one of the activities you do as a senior parent with a senior is you sing a duet together oh dear, or a couple of verses from a song yeah, oh dear uh, <laughs> and he indulged me but I you know look um it was the beta band dry the rain um but you know it Looking back on that part of that, the exercise at the school was that a lot of people are afraid to sing in public and right. it's, you're showing courage and you're being brave. And this is really important thing for your 
kids to see. I think my son was just brave to sing with me. I think he already, <laughs> you know, it's already very comfortable singing. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't. Thank God. Good for you. Good <laughs> I for wish you. I could, cool thing for you guys. It was pretty cool. I, I hope he thinks it was cool. I, I didn't have the nerve to ask him at the time. He, <laughs> I said to Charlie, I said to Charlie this morning, I said, you think I'm cool, right? And he was just, just kind of like glances over and I was like, hi, baby, mama loves you. I always do that when I drop him off at school. Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know if they think you're, I mean, I'm asked that. What do your kids think of the project? And yeah. uh, uh, they, I will say they're very supportive and they're, um, you know, they, they did ask me not to follow some people through the project name, like some of their friends or something. Right. Right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little embarrassing. I they'll guess. be, but, they'll be super proud when they're 40. Yeah. And, and you know what, they're or so, 30. they're so, they're so helpful because they speak the Instagram language. They, they True. are, they're my best critics. And they also tell me when I'm deviating from who I am, they'll say, that's not, you like why did that's not what you do and so they're very good at reflecting back to me what I do mm. even if it's not how they do things they'll say this is who you are and I trust them to be my sort of truth meter in terms of what I'm doing mm, I love that they keep you honest they surely surely do <laughs> yes. well you know what this I'm so glad I, so many of my questions have been answered now um, <laughs> you I, didn't ask me who's going to win the election. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's the one off. question you can't ask me. <laughs> no, I'll call you on um, the afternoon of November third and see what you think. Oh, uh, we. I I don't know how, what to do to observe. <laughs> I don't want to say celebrate the election, but I've had all these different fantasies of, like, what will I post that day? What will it? Well, like and you are speedy. Like. What was the thing that you put up the other day? Something happened in the news, and there was already a piece up, and somebody even commented and said, "Wow, you're fast." Yeah, I mean, I always tended to joke like I know how he thinks, but you know, you and I were talking earlier about how Trump is unpredictable. He's actually not that predictable. I mean, um, in terms of language, he uses a lot of the same language, right. but I'm speedy because, um, I mean, for you, if you're getting news from Seth Meyers, he has to do his bit before you can see it. So right. there, and also Trump repeats himself and also occasionally now I've looped back to earlier pieces and pulled them from the archive and posted them. So right. Kamala Harris, the piece I posted today was when Biden announced her as his running mate. It's weird when you see that happen, when history starts to fold on itself a bit. Yeah. Um, but I'm working all day. So as long as, you know, if it's a sentence, I can stitch it pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, like, that's what I said. I get my net, my news from Seth and you. That's how I know when things have happened. I'm like, oh, I, I feel like I'm in good company then. You are. You should be on Seth. Yeah. I'm sure he I, listens too. He probably I would be, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will I will talk to anyone. I'm I'm, you know, I think it's always really nice. And thank you for inviting me to be in your podcast. Oh, of course. Well, you, you know, Miranda, Miranda July was just on Seth. Ah uh, Ashley Longshore was on. Yes. I mean, and Ashley was at Lingua Franca before I was. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And they just yeah. put up her piece when, um, when yes. RBG passed. Yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. yeah it's a wonderful, and, and I know because you've, you've cultured and cared for artists, it is a, this is an extremely supportive community. I mean, it it's, is. It's, whether it's Rachel Maddow tweeting about the project or 
you know, an eight-year-old. It, it, it just is, you know, getting involved. It is an extremely supportive community. And, and people don't say that often enough, I think, about the arts, arts world, crafts world, whatever we want to call this. We're in yeah. this space. Did Rachel Maddow really tweet about it? She did. Oh, my um, God. It, it is really people when they see something they want to see other people succeed in this world i find i i'm i feel so lucky that way whether it's ross fast or myra coleman or anybody who's been supportive of this project um they're really supporting all the people who have participated and that's so great that's, see, that's you a good feeling for the next hour feeling. if you don't look yes. at twitter <laughs> Yeah, I know. Twitter brings up so many bad feelings versus, you know, this is so, it's so good. And it's true. Your community is amazing. And I'm so grateful for my community, which I think, I think ours overlap quite a bit, which is, again, why I'm so thrilled to have you on. So um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Do you know how much news in an hour and a half we've probably missed? And you know, I have not, yeah, I have not looked at my phone, even though this is not on video, I could be looking at my phone. You could. That is a weird feeling I have whenever I, um, I mean, I don't really go very far away from my phone anymore, but when I do, I think, oh, I've been, I've been irresponsible. (laughs) (laughs) I should get home and feed my Twitter feed. (laughs) That's right. I'm going to let you go and let's see if you make five pieces in the next hour and a half. And I am going to go and find something. uh, I'm going to find a quote and I'm going to find something to stitch on. And again, I am not stitcher but i will i will do it and i want to be part of this project so that when it's I, in the well, Smithsonian, you, you, you are part of it already having you know shared it and been so supportive of it but i can't wait to see your work and the fact that you're made i don't i don't use the term not a good stitcher but that really inspires people to see someone who has who is an artist but is doing something in a medium that they don't normally work in. Yeah, and um, you know, I think that's that has been really exciting for me too through, through all this quarantine is that people are trying new things. Yes. Because we kind of have nothing but time. So I used to do embroidery, but like, again, totally self-taught. And I, I have really bad arthritis now. And so I find holding the needle quite hard, like, and I, I can't thread it very well. And uh, so I kind of let it fade out of my work. But um, I'm going to pop some Advil. <laughs> yeah, you know, drugs are great now, I yeah. hear. I hear there's just some great drugs out there. Yeah, there's some, <laughs> and under, the, under the Trump administration, they've got some really great knowledge and some really right. great drugs. And it just has to be, like the, the thread has to be worked. I mean, some pieces there's less stitching than, I don't know how to put it, like I'm thinking about what the medium you're working in now, but it, it's not like you have to stitch every word. There, there has to be an element of thread that has been hand stitched, but it yeah. doesn't have to be the words or, I mean, people stitched into paintings, they've stitched borders around something else. Mm-hmm. So that there's, you know, play with it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm saying that to you, but, but you know, I'm not that rigid. Okay. I'm excited. There's my project yeah. for the day. Yay. Good. Thank um, you for this conversation. No, thank you. I appreciate it so much. And um, I hope, you know, that we've inspired a few more people to go and make pieces and maybe a few men out there will do it too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you and uh, hop on Twitter and I will see you on Instagram. (laughs) See you soon. Okay. Bye. Okay. I loved every minute of that conversation. And once again, I'm left wanting chips, ketchup chips this time though. Do you remember um, Terrence Payne telling his ketchup chip story? Oh boy, (laughs) always entertaining that guy. 
Anywho, thank you so much to Diana for not only taking the time to talk to me, but for committing the past two plus years of her life to a project of this size. It truly is a time capsule within a time capsule, and I really do hope it ends up somewhere like the Smithsonian. And okay, actually, while we're still here, let me hit refresh one more time and, and nope, no, nothing. Okay, that's fine. I'm fine. Keep counting. We will wait. Thank you so much for listening today. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.